0: Hello, I'm Scott Sashley. I'm Evan Novi williams And I'm Michael Barr, and this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Today, we begin with a conversation on new rules to compensate college athletes and how much stars like Zion Williamson would have possibly made in their time at the NCAA under these rules.
1: Yeah, well, I just stumbled upon this, bar and uh, Mr. Underscore, that a sports economist and a professor of economics at Southern Utah, David Berry, sort of—and it makes sense the way he did it. It was sort of how much revenue does a team generate, how many wins does a player contribute to, uh, how much do they get per win, yada, yada. Anyway, he has concluded that Zion Williamson, who of course is now in the NBA, um, but he would have made over $5 million in his final season at Duke. That's what— his contribution to the program would have been worth. So for all these folks out there who are wondering, well, how would you figure out what somebody's worth and how much the athletes would get paid? And Obviously, this is pie in the sky. This does not exist. Players do not get paid. But probably eye-popping for people to realize that under this formula... Zion five million dollars.
2: Yeah, this is the, the the pro formula essentially. take the revenue, fifty percent of it roughly goes to players and then d- dividing it up from there. Um, I, I mean I have a few thoughts on this. one I, in an open market, Zion Williams, sorry, would have been <laughs> yeah, paid significantly more <laughs> just, I think, just to go to a program th- than, than five million dollars just more. for just for one year. but would work. you what
1: well, you could argue though he'd be worth more to Kentucky and Duke than he would be Akron.
2: Yeah, I think that for sure. And and you know, Akron's probably not gonna pay right. Zion Williamson more than five million dollars even Especially if the, even if they, even if they could. Um but yeah, and you bring Zips up it. football. I mean uh, the the numbers are so much bigger than this, probably depending on who the star is and, and where I mean when Johnny Manziel, That's what, that's the always the example I think. It's it makes a perfect sense. Johnny example. Manziel. He was yeah. at Texas A and M when they jumped to the SEC, so there was a lot going on, but Texas A&M is the richest program, college sports program in the country right now, um, and you can trace that back to Johnny Manziel. They said that his Heisman Trophy alone was thirty-seven million dollars worth of media exposure. I believe when RG three won at Baylor, they said his entire kind of Heisman ecosystem was worth two hundred and fifty million. The numbers are are staggering. Um, so, so this is just one way of calculating it, and I think it's fairly conservative when I actually look at the numbers.
1: I'm I'm excited, I mean, we know like the Pac-12 is looking to like breaking off a media. Entity and selling it, so it's not going to go to a private equity group, but we'll see what other media companies or whoever else is interested. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to give a good window into how people think they can monetize just the media rights off of the big time college. It, yeah, sports. and we
2: should mention. I mean, we, we've talked a lot about this momentum right now in college sports for to let players market themselves, yeah. right? This number that Dave Barry calculated is totally separate from whatever Zion Williamson theoretically could have gotten on an open market nike. to be yeah, to have a nike partnership to be gatorade to be on the local car dealers to be in a in a, in a video game you There's and so i have discussed
1: other. it like the real value here to the broad majority of college athletes i think a lot of them would be surprised that there isn't much of a market for sort of the tackle or the end or the whatever mm-hmm. uh the huge huge stars yes but on that local car dealership the local restaurant Opportunities abound for some of these athletes.
2: Yeah, and I, I mean personally, I think that they should be paid for both, you know, the ability to market themselves and for a lot of the money they're bringing in. But I think it's a much more palatable sell right now to say, "Hey, let these kids sign marketing deals," much like any other student on campus. I think that's an easier sell uh, than it is to say, "Hey, give these kids a direct cut of the media rights or you know the there's, donations." That there's in.
1: only really one aspect of the big time college athletics that is not. <clears throat> Akin to what you see in the pros, and that's the pay. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously no collective bargaining agreement, but it's really the pay. Everything else, all, all the infrastructure, all the facilities, the salaries, the media, it's just like a pro enterprise.
0: Up next, we turn from college to the pros, where NBA ratings are suffering this year, and I'm a little bit surprised about that. Why are you surprised, Bob? Because I've always said this. The NBA is the perfect game for today's society. It's about a little over two, maybe two and a half hours. It's young people enjoy it. Uh, The game moves. I've always thought this was the perfect game, the perfect vehicle for the media today?
2: I would counter that with a couple things. One, I think the NBA regular season feels largely irrelevant to, and, to and the, to the results so. and is getting more so, one, I think, because you know there, there seems to be fewer and fewer teams in the top echelon of competitors. And two, and, and we can talk more about this, load management, which that's, seems to be the, 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 the two-word buzzword that's going around really all sports right now. Um, but especially in the NBA, it, it seems as though there is a problem with players. Kawhi Leonard seems to Not be just leading players, this.
1: Not but... players. No league is more driven by its superstars than the NBA. And that's why Very David true. Stern years ago was so angry with Greg Popovich when he rested his stars in a national TV game. They would wish, you need, you need to rest Kawhi Leonard? Don't do it on a TNT or ESPN game. Those folks pay us a lot of money. They need the superstars. I get it. Uh, And there's a fine balance because a coach's job is not to drive ratings. A coach's job is to ultimately win the NBA championship.
2: It's funny because the NBA is kind of in this place where on the court, you know, ratings are not particularly good. Eight of the 10 TNT games this year are down from last year.
1: They didn't draw a million Uh, viewers.
2: Yeah, the nine games already haven't drawn— primetime games haven't drawn a million viewers. They were 19 all of last year. Um, But off the field, and to your point, Michael— I, off the field, the NBA has never been buzzier, right? The the yeah. offseason was still the media, news right? every day. The, the, there's so much, it's like almost like a reality but, but show again. off the court, but on the court, it's not as compelling hey, as maybe say, it once was.
1: Let's say we ended the NBA's broadcast contracts right now. Yeah. Okay, it's open, all of it. It's free market. Who wants it? Does anybody think the number's going to go down? No. No. Exactly. No. Exactly. That's ultimately, maybe, maybe we need to start looking at more than just ratings. It's we're selling the final minutes of games, and, you know, what is it? Which they're doing. Yeah. I forgot right, the number. Right. But, uh, but, yeah, the, the way people are starting to interact and consume this stuff is changing. There are different ways to monetize an NBA game, and it's not solely going to be just the big companies or the fangs in the next one we'll see forking over the billions of dollars to broadcast this stuff.
2: And this also plays well into players hands right i mean sure. i they are they have never been more popular than yeah. they are right now and and the kind of the thread the The popularity of these things, like trade deadlines and you know off season spats, et cetera, like the thread there is the the players, right? And and that is that is access that players can give that isn't part of necessarily part of the the big you know multi million dollar billion dollar TV deals. Uh, there, there's certainly an opportunity there in a star driven league like the NBA.
1: Yeah, and I don't know if this is a dirty little secret, but I think everybody who's kind of been in the basketball in the basketball world has known that really the season doesn't start till Christmas Day anyway. Hmm. So what's happening now? Eh, take it with a grain of salt. Let's yeah, see what's happened. Let's see, see what happens at Christmas.
0: Here's how I counter with that. And, and I go back to uh, sports betting and online sports betting. The big thing about watching a game is that I can bet live online as the game is going on. So I need to monitor. Let's say, for instance, I'm watching OKC and OKC gets on a, a 10 point run. Then all of a sudden it's like, well, I can change any bet that I want. That's why I'm, I don't understand why the ratings are down but you don't
1: need first of all it's not it's not US wide yet there's certain places yeah, granted, you can do that's that true. I agree. and you don't need to be watching the game per se on TV to make those bets you can follow it in any number of ways
2: and right. and one other question to toss into the mix here you know lebron james who is you know the 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 main draw right now remains for 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 basketball played so long on the east coast is now on the West Coast. The two most compelling teams, I would imagine right now, are the Lakers and the Clippers. There seems to have been this kind of shift in power and maybe more specifically interest to the West Coast, and that can't help. You know, LeBron James, his home games end at 1 a.m. Eastern, if not later. That can't help ratings on a national level if if the teams that people really want to see are all starting their games, you know, at 10 o'clock on on the East Coast.
1: So if you're a TV executive, you're saying, hey, give me LeBron, but I want him on the road back East? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you're, if
2: you're TNT, you'd love to see some of this stardom on the West Coast start shifting its way east where it had been for so long. Let's
1: mark it down. Let's watch and see what happens on the Christmas Day games. By uh, the way, uh,
0: congratulations <laughs> to LeBron James, the only man in the NBA to score a triple-double on every team in the league.
1: Oh, I did not know that. That's nice. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did not know that.
0: Finally, let's talk sports news media, where the New York Times is considering spinning off its sports section to a standalone digital subscription.
1: Yeah, what do you what do you think, Novi Williams? I mean, you're like a uh, you're a print uh, print out the uh, crossword <laughs> puzzle guy. You're not a <laughs> yeah, digital a, guy. I'm you I'm uh, you guy. print out the thing. You put it in your pocket when you go to the subway. Um, I get why people would pony up for the crossword. I get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, New York Times sports section. Would you? Think about paying an extra subscription fee for that to get it as an a la carte basis. I mean, it's just not hardcore... Sports fan news. It's mountain climbing. It's there's been a shift in that.
2: Situation. Yeah, it's funny. I think I think you hit that exactly right. The, the the New York Times sports section seems to have in the past decade or so shifted away from game coverage. Yeah, game coverage. I don't even know if they team had a coverage. beat writer with yeah. them with the Mets this year. Right. They, they, they've shifted away from you know the New York team coverage, game coverage, and done more you know bigger and I think fantastic you know wider stories about you mm-hmm. know mountain climbing or you know they've beefed up their soccer coverage yeah. a lot. Shout out to Terry. Dark Pedro yeah. <laughs> used, used to work with us here at Bloomberg, who does great work. Um, it's more general sports, and and very often not the big four sports. Um, and I, it, to me, having a subscription model like that is is aimed at you know hardcore localized things, right? The Athletic. You know, we, we can debate whether or not the Athletic is, is healthy right now, but they have expanded very quickly. They've raised a lot of money because they're offering hyper-localized yes. sports coverage. The New York Times is not doing that. So unless there is a shift, you know, the product is not hyper-localized. Right. It's not New York-centric at all. Right. It's more general-interest sports, and is there enough there? To 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 drive subscriptions, I'm not sure about that.
1: I don't know either. Um, I won't say yes or no. um, But it's interesting that it's one of the things they're thinking about, just sort of spinning off their sections.
2: Yeah, and then another kind of part of that question is how many people subscribe to the New York Times primarily to get their sports coverage. yeah. Yeah, and if that is a high number, you end up you you run the risk of of cannibalizing your main product by offering a cheaper, smaller, more specific product that people can shift their way to. You
1: know me, bar anyway, I'm just like, hey, Novi Williams, you got that, uh, what's the? What's your password? <laughs> co- 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 copy and paste it. Get, you send it to me so I can see it. It's nice. I just go about it that way, so it won't affect me. By the way, we
0: have a treat. Big treat. We call it a bonus. But you have a huge treat. You gave me this treat. I did. You guys, and I appreciate it. All right, I spoke with Roger Penske, and you know racing, you know Roger Penske. Uh, He has won numerous Indy 500s with his teams. He's great in NASCAR also, and he just recently bought the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh, He also purchased the IRL governing body. And uh, we talked about many things. In fact, what happens uh, when you have a car that's in the race and you're the governing body? What happens there? And we started with uh, one of his uh, superstars on his NASCAR team, Joey Logano. He was last year's NASCAR champion. And by the way, congratulations to Kyle Busch this year. But we talked about Joey Logano, and this is how the interview went.
3: Well, I think Joey came on and has just uh, matured so much, and uh, he won the championship for us last year. He's uh, he's a class guy, and I think that he and Brittany and they've got young children now, and it's uh, just a mature young man. And he's probably one of the toughest guys on the circuit. I think he's well, you know, perceived by his uh, his his teammates and also his peers that he's a guy tough to beat. So we're so glad to have him on our team.
0: Now, next year, you're heading for the finale at uh, IMS on a short track uh, in Arizona, and we all know everybody will be calm on a short track. (laughs) Your your thoughts about uh, that kind of racing next year?
3: Well, I think, uh, you know, from the NASCAR perspective, uh, you know, they're finishing the the playoffs at Homestead uh, uh, this next weekend, and next year they move out to the uh, ISM Speedway, which is in Phoenix, owned by, you know, the France family, and I think that... uh, that's going to be interesting. They've done a lot of work out there. They spent uh, uh, probably fifty or six, seventy million dollars redoing that track. And I think uh, we had a chance to race on it this past weekend with amenities for the fans and the activities and, and really uh, the transparency for the fans and seeing what's going on in the garage. Here, I think we're trying to make it more fan friendly, which has certainly you know helped. Uh, helping the sport when we look at uh, you know the ratings this year from a motorsports perspective.
0: Speaking of the France family, you have joined that very elite group where you are the owner of one of the most prominent racetracks around. The France family of course, they own the Daytona Speedway and now you are the owner of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and I, I couldn't think of anybody else uh, if the George family couldn't own it uh, my goodness, uh, Roger Penn Definitely could. I understand that uh, the George family approached you about this.
3: Yeah, listen, we we, we haven't uh, passed the check over yet. We, we will take <laughs> that'll take place uh, first of January. We've got to go through the normal regulatory and uh, state filings, but we're in good process there. We've had a very very good uh, uh, time from the standpoint of uh, negotiating the deal. I was approached. Uh, you know, back at uh, the last IndyCar race by Tony Jordan said he'd like to talk to me about the future, not knowing exactly what that was. We set a date up to go to Indianapolis and he and Mark Miles, uh, you know, uh, laid out to me uh, the opportunity uh, from the standpoint of would we be interested in purchasing uh, the key assets of the Holman Company. And obviously, uh, you know, my stomach was going 100 miles an hour to think that I even have a chance. It's almost a dream come true when you think your dad took you to Indianapolis in uh, 1951 as a kid. And I think that, uh, you know, we had a, you know, a very, very quick process. Uh, both organizations were connected. We really worked seven days a week and were able to uh, complete uh, signing of a merger agreement. The families uh, uh, all agreed 100 percent and uh, our board approved it. And we announced that, uh, you know, we could go Monday. So, uh, you know, pretty exciting when you think about the speed to get that done. And on the other hand, I think the the iconic uh, track to think about, uh, you know, 300,000 people there. It's probably the biggest sporting event in the world each May, and to think that we have the opportunity now to take on the reins and uh, be the receiver of, you know, a super asset. So we're very excited as a company and certainly as a family.
0: Now let's see if my history is down to earth here when it comes to the 51 winner of the 500. So you saw Lee Wallard win the 500 that year.
3: Pretty good. I sure did. Lee Wallard. (laughs) That's pretty good. Yeah, we sure did. Yeah, Lee Wallard was there, and uh, that was a. And, you know, I went to the Speedway after that every single year until we had a split back in, uh, I guess it was somewhere about 96 through 2000, and, you know, we had championship auto racing teams, and then we woke up and said, hey, we better get back to the Speedway. So we had good luck there. We won the race 18 times. Uh, uh, I think that uh, it's probably a pinnacle – You know, for us uh, in our business, it's been a common thread, you know, building our brand over the years, uh, you know, based on uh, being able to compete and win and the transparency and the hard work. And I think uh, the integrity that, uh, you know, that stands for when you win a race like that at Indianapolis. So, you know, it's been a it's been a great uh, asset for us, even though we haven't owned it.
0: I want to talk about, you've had many drivers that have raced for you, but one driver who did win the Indy 500, I'm going to believe back in 72, I always thought one of the greatest drivers around and uh, an unsung hero was Mark Donahue. Can you tell me about your relationship with uh, the late, great Mark Donahue and uh, just how great he was on the track?
3: Well, you know, Mark goes back, we go back uh, into the 60s, really, uh, you know, he was driving an Elva Courier up at Lime Rock, and someone pointed him out to me, and I got to know him and uh, said, look, let's get together. And he was a Brown graduate, uh, you know, had a crew-cut haircut, an engineer, and he was all into into cars and racing. Well, we developed, uh, obviously, a ra- relationship very quickly, and he joined, uh, you know, uh, Penske Racing at that point and uh, really became, uh, he worked at the shop. He was uh, technically savvy from an from a certainly from uh, when we were looking at uh, innovative ideas. And uh, we ran the Can-Am series, uh, uh, which we won. Uh, We ran the Porsche big 91730s, which just, uh, you know, wiped out the field. Uh, And then uh, we ran the the Trans-Am series with the Camaros. But uh, during that time, we, of course, uh, went to Indianapolis uh, in 1969. He was uh, uh, Rookie of the Year, and then in '72. You know, we won our first race, but uh, Mark was a wonderful person. Unfortunately, uh, he he died after a, a practice accident in the Austrian Grand Prix on race morning, and uh, he got out of the car. They thought he was all right, and then he, I guess, had a, a, a brain uh, hemorrhage. or I'm not sure what the official word was at that point, but he passed. And you know, he left a legacy for us, uh, which we carried on, uh, you know, throughout the many years after Mark passed. So. Uh, you know, I regard him as really the the key foundation block in in our in our race team.
0: And that's something a lot of people don't know about you. I mean, obviously, you you have many businesses, but uh, you were very good as a racing driver back, in, especially what 1960. You were on Sports Illustrated's uh, Driver of the Year.
3: Well, look, those, that's a long time ago. I'm not sure. Uh... <laughs> How I would compete today, the only thing I can say that uh, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure which, what year it was, I was asked to go to take my driver's test uh, at the Indianapolis uh, 500 by uh, Clint Bronner and Jim McGee, and I was working for Alcoa at that time as a sales salesman, and they wouldn't let me off, so Mario Andretti took the test in that car, so I guess each of us took a little different street, but ended up uh, at home in pretty good shape. <laughs>
0: My son, my oldest son, he is uh, 28 years old, and uh, I taught him how to count by the numbers on the racing car, and the first number he ever learned was 43, Richard Petty, yeah. <laughs> and, and and he's a big race fan just like I am today, and uh, every year he goes to the Detroit Grand Prix, where you guys race, uh, and he said one of the greatest things about the IndyCar series is that the drivers meet the fans. They just come out and uh, they'll say hello, and then the meet and greet. I think that's one reason why IndyCar racing is is on the rise.
3: Well, I think uh, when you when you think about it, uh, my grandkids the same thing. They're watching TV, and I this is sixes is mirrors and someone else. So you're you're in the same league I am. I'm teaching my grandkids, but uh, when you think about transparency and access. That's one of the things that uh, IndyCar has done well. I think I've seen, and even guys like Petty, sit on the front fender of their car until the last fan goes, you know, goes home. And to me, on IndyCar, they have autograph times when their guys are scheduled to sit at a table by their transporter. And, and this is what we need today, access. And, uh, you know, with the TV and the in-car cameras and the ability to listen to the feedback on the radio between the car and the pits, you can do that. Uh, you can stream it. It, it's been uh, the technology is great. We'll be getting five G. These are things that are only going to make it better. And I think the length of the races are probably the the right time. And with the Indy Car on a rise, we're pretty excited uh, for the future. And this is a tremendous uh, you know opportunity. This has uh, been owned by you know the Holman family since uh, the nineteen forties and what we hope to do is be able to be the uh, guardian and, and secure these assets and hopefully build on, on the value of them as we go forward.
0: One last question. Congratulations on winning the Medal of Freedom. You just won it uh, only uh, a few days ago, and it was awarded to you. Can you tell us about that feeling and what it was like to receive that award?
3: Well, I'd have to say very humbling, and to be able to walk in the Oval Office uh, you know, with your family. I had my five children there, their spouses, my brother and his wife, and to walk in the Oval Office and have the president, vice president there and shaking their hands. And it's just, uh, it's something that uh, you just never forget. And I never will. It's a a very humbling time. And, you know, to think that uh, in this country, in the United States of America, you have the opportunity to build, you know, a business, build a reputation and have someone like the president, obviously, uh, uh, call you and say that they want to uh, give you this Medal of Freedom honor which is uh, certainly key and I as I said during my my time there I said you know the great the greatest people for us in the in the in the US are the men and women in the military and the first responders they're the they're the true heroes and the backbone of our country and this honor obviously you know started where they were rewarding an honor to uh, to the military so I feel uh, you know very honored and uh, again it's something that uh, our family will never forget
0: well, as an old-school, die-hard racing fan, I can't even call you Roger Penske. It's Mr. Penske. So I want to say thank you so much for taking the time out and talking with us. Keep up the great work, and good luck to you for owning the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, sir.
3: Uh, Greg, call me anytime. Glad to talk to you. All the best. Thank, thank you. you.
0: Thank you, sir. Yeah. Guys, that was my conversation with Roger Penske. I should great call job, Sir Roger yeah. Penske, because he's, he's just awesome. That would imply British knighthood. Yes, and he should. <laughs> he should get it. He I, also said that you should call him anytime. You should call him yes. you, should, you should try him this you should, week. Yeah, right. Rod, Rod what's Rod,
3: happening?
2: Rod just yeah. said I should call. <laughs> yeah. He said anytime. It's 1 p.m. on a Friday.
0: The irony of that is his first, uh, one of his first uh, venues as a team owner was the 1966 24 Hours of Daytona, which coincides with the the film that has just come out now, Ford versus Ferrari, which is a lot about... Getting a that. lot of buzz, yeah. Ford versus Ferrari. Which is a good movie, by the way. I, I didn't see it, but I, th- I, th- I may see it. All right. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Michael Barr, along with Scott Sasnick and Evan Novi williams We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday exploring the world of money and sports.
2: Join us again at the end of the week. We have Jared Smith, the president of Ticketmaster, in here talking about all things ticketing.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world and online wherever you get your podcasts.